Just before Easter this past year, I was reading in the book of Luke, and I was kind of tracing the last days of Jesus as he was making his way to Jerusalem. Somewhat casually and very matter-of-factly, really, Luke records several of the encounters that Jesus had along that way to the city where he would die on the cross as the atonement for our sins. And one of those accounts is in Luke 17, the healing of ten lepers. That's a story that you've probably heard many times. Maybe you've read it many times. I know that I had. And yet it stood out to me more vividly last spring because of its connection to what at that time was the beginning of our experience with the coronavirus pandemic. Our passage in Luke is an account of a seemingly incurable sickness. In this case, it's the infectious disease of leprosy. And there was no known cure back then, and even today, the cure for leprosy is a multi-drug, long-term endeavor. But there was no cure for it, and so the only way to mitigate the disease of leprosy, which was contagious, was by isolating the people who had it from the rest of the community. Or, in other words, to practice what we have come to know as social distancing. Who knew that social distancing was in the Bible? But last April, I seemed to be particularly sensitive to it, and probably you were too. Luke writes, on the way to Jerusalem, he, that is Jesus, was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers. As he entered, right, he was going into the village. These men are not in the village because they're not allowed to be in the village. These men are not with their families. They are not allowed to be with their families. The only thing they can do is keep company with a few others who have the same sickness. In other words, these men are quarantined. On paper and in policy, quarantine is a public health measure. We understand it. To the person's quarantine, however, it's more than a public health measure. It's isolation. It's segregation. It's loneliness. It's incredible loss. As long as a person had leprosy, she or he was considered to be unclean, by law required to live alone, uh, or with others who were similarly afflicted, but always outside the camp. The understandable concern and the fear and the basis for that law that you find in Leviticus chapter 13 is that those who are sick will afflict those who are well. So lepers were not allowed to mingle, and lepers were not allowed to shop, and lepers were not allowed to worship in the synagogue. And so now, this is what was dawning on me and perhaps on you, we begin to understand a little bit better the sentence that these men are under after losing some of these privileges ourselves over the last several weeks and months. I think we've come to know that the whole human experience is diminished by things like quarantine. We were made for a lot more, and we long for a lot more. Um, And for us to bear this burden over the last few weeks and, and coming into months now has been difficult. But for those 10 lepers, if you could think of it this way, barring a miracle, that's their reality for the rest of their lives. That's how they're going to end their days. We look forward with hope that this will change. But they really had no hope. So as Jesus came near, these men, they are literal outcasts. 
They have lost the privilege of proximity, and now they stood at a distance. And since the law forbade them to come close to Jesus, we are told, we are told these days to stay six feet away from each other. Tradition holds that back then, if one was a leper, they were required to stay a hundred paces away. The only way these men could garner Christ's attention was by raising their voices, by speaking loudly. Verse 13 says that's what they did. They lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. We note here they call him by name. They call him by name because they know his name. They know his name because he has become well known throughout the region. News of, of who he was and what he's done has traveled. They also use a title, Master. It's an interesting title. It's a title that means commander. It means one who superintends. So it isn't just that news of Jesus' ministry has become known. So has news of his power. So has news of his authority, of his ability uh, to heal. Using that word master. Master is the image that uh, is captured of Jesus in an old hymn written by a fellow named James Rowe. The song is called Love Lifted Me, and you might be familiar with it. And the author there uh, likens sin to drowning in the sea. And he calls on two biblical accounts of Jesus with his disciples in water, in terrible storms, and fearful. And he wrote this, I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry, from the waters lifted me, now safe am I. Souls in danger, look above, Jesus completely saves. He will lift you by his love out of the angry waves. He's the master of the sea, billows his will obey. He, your savior, wants to be, be saved today. Don't you think in times like these, it's good to be reminded that God is Lord over everything, that he is Lord over nature? We spent a couple of weeks looking at Psalm 46. And in Psalm 46, the psalmist envisions a scary scenario, as scary of a thing as he can imagine, uh, of nature in upheaval, of great disorder in creation, of mountains being cast into the sea. And we talked a little bit about how they, that may have some implications, as in mountains being places where one meets with God and has fellowship with God, and a sea being that place of tumult and fear and danger. Listen, beloved, we do well to remember that during his earthly ministry, and not coincidentally, Jesus Christ walked on the sea. <laughs> he walked on the sea. He, he's Lord over everything that we are afraid of, everything that threatens to overwhelm us. Jesus walks on that stuff. He's the master. He's the commander. And so when he says, peace be still, what do the waves do but obey? They have no choice. And the disciples are wondering, who is this guy and how does he do that? He beckons the seas to stop, and they stop. He tells the wind to cease. The sea lies down. He is commander of all. He's, he's Lord over everything, including disease. So in contrast to this powerful Jesus, in Luke we find ten powerless lepers. And they appeal then to his power. Being powerless themselves, they appeal to his power, and they ask him for mercy. Together they lift up their voice. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. 
And their request here is for more than just healing. Of course, they want to be healed, but it's everything that comes with the healing, okay? Their cry for mercy is a plea for restoration. It is to get things back to the way they used to be or to move them to where they ought to be. What they want from Jesus, what they want from life is peace and harmony and joy and acceptance. And these are not unreasonable aspirations. They really would just like to be welcomed into somebody's home. What they're asking Jesus really to fix is not just their bodies, but everything that this awful disease has stolen from them. Family, friends, vocation, worship. They lift their voices to Jesus. And that is exactly the right thing to do when one is in desperate need. I would say that it is exactly the right thing to do anytime. But the reality is we're often so self-sufficient that we don't really cry to Jesus until we come up against it. At least that's not always our habit. And if that's our habit, we ought to break that habit and get in the habit of calling on Jesus, not just for his blessing, but for his guidance and for his help. And we must come to understand that anything we might accomplish in this world isn't because we're so bright or so strong or so able or so innovative. Jesus was pretty clear in John 15, right? Apart from me, you can do nothing. <laughs> so, so that's the process of discipleship, isn't it, beloved? Us learning that it's Christ in us. If anything's going to get done, it's Jesus in us. And it's not just, it's not just us. But we can call on Jesus anytime. And Jesus isn't offended if we haven't called on him until we came up against a desperate need. It is not as if the Son of God is in heaven with his arms folded saying, you should have called earlier. That's not how he is. He is gracious and kind and, and attentive to your need and, and completely able to meet it. So cry out to Jesus when you know you have a need. That's what these men did. They could not solve it themselves. Their problem was too big. Their need here is obvious. It is an incurable disease that has led them to isolation and deep loneliness that has only been fended off by being able to keep company with a few others who are in equal misery. These men need something that they cannot manufacture, a cleansing that is beyond them, a healing that eludes them. No amount of bathing or scratching or rubbing sores with rocks is going to rid them of this blight. Jesus is their only hope. And what does the scripture say? After, after they cried out to him, the scripture says this, and he saw them. And he saw them. Uh, not too long ago, well actually it is years ago, time flies when you're having fun. We were studying Paul Miller's um, story of Jesus, Love Walked Among Us. And during that study, we noted how compassion begins with seeing. And we also noted at the same time, actually I think we really kind of corporately confessed how easy it is not to see. How easy it is to, for whatever reason, to get caught up in our own lives and not see what's going on, to how easy it is to be desensitized to all the struggles and harden our hearts to what's going on. There are lots of reasons for us not to see, and it's very easy to get into that habit of just sort of putting our own blinders on. Some people would say, I've got enough problems dealing with my own stuff, I can't deal with anybody else's. Not a scriptural uh, mentality, by the way, but still human, normal, understandable. We do that, though. We can become like that 
priest or the Levite that walked around the wounded man on the road to Jericho in the parable of the Good Samaritan, we can become like um, the rich man who stepped outside of his mansion and stepped over Lazarus, the beggar, who laid daily at his gate. We can walk past and turn blind eyes to great needs. That is not the example of our Lord, and that is not how we truly want to be. He saw them, because meeting needs begins by recognizing them. And when he saw them, verse 14, he said to them, Go and show yourself to the priest. Notice here, Jesus gave him something to do. If they believed him, they would do as he commanded. If God is calling you to do something and you believe God and God is your Savior, God is your Lord, then you've got to obey. And Jesus said that. If you love me, obey my commands. So, so obedience is always that test of true faith and true love, true commitment. If I'm not willing to obey God, then I must not really believe in him and I must not really have faith in him. It's something else that I've got, but it's not love for God and it's not faith. Jesus gave them something to do. In their book, uh, Flickering Lamps, Henry and Richard Blackaby point out, just as God did not stop the waters of the Jordan River until the priest's feet dipped into the water, so God often waits until we start marching before he provides. When Jesus said to these men, go and show yourself to the priest, that may have seemed like an odd request. That's what you do when you're cleansed. And it's the priest then who can say, okay, you're clean. Now you can get back into general population. These men could have looked at each other and said, I'm leprous. Are you leprous? You're leprous. I'm leprous. Well, this would be silly. Why would we go and do this? Why bother to go? We haven't been healed. They could find all kinds of reasons not to follow Jesus, but they needed to take a step. That's Blackaby's point. That's the scriptural point. If the Lord is calling you to do something, go ahead and do it. Very frequently, when the Lord calls us to do something, we take inventory. And that inventory is of what we have. What, what kind of strength do I have? What kind of resources do I have? What kind of skill do I have? What kind of intellect do I have? What kind of gifting do I have? Listen, none of that is particularly relevant if the Lord is telling you to go and do something. Because the reality is that he will always equip his people to do exactly what he calls them to do. He will always come through for that. He will never fail in that. So when the Lord says to do it, it's important that we take a step and that we go. Just like those Israelites who had to step into that river, it was at flood stage. You remember that? It was not just a river. It was a flooded river. It was a raging river that God stopped. And here he sends these men on a journey. And they had a reason not to go, but they, they went. Praise the Lord, they went. And it turns out, if they hadn't gone, they would not have hurt, re- received their healing. If they hadn't gone, they wouldn't have received the healing, for it was on their journey to present themselves to the priest. It was as they were going that they are healed. And almost glibly, the latter half of verse 14, with one half of one verse, seven words in both English and Greek, Luke simply notes, and as they went, they were cleansed. And that's it. That's all we get. That's the miracle. I mean, I guess he was a physician and he was just used to being matter of fact. I'd be like, woohoo! This deserves a celebration. This deserves at least one more verse in the Bible that says, Isn't that amazing? Well, as they went, they were cleansed. 
a miracle truly has occurred now. No one has ever been cleansed uh, from leprosy by going for a walk. God has supernaturally changed the course of ten men's lives. He has lifted the disease from their bodies. He has separated their sickness from them. He has given them the new lease on life that they asked for. They asked for mercy. Don't miss it. They asked for mercy, and they got it. They asked for mercy, and they got it, because God is merciful. And James tells us that we often don't receive because we don't ask what would keep us from asking. Here they ask and they get it. They get mercy. Now mercy in the Bible, we've gone over this many times, I'm sure, but I want to make sure you kind of get the distinction. Mercy is not getting what is deserved. When we ask the the judge to have mercy, we're acknowledging that that judge could impose a harsh sentence on us that would be right. We're asking for less than that. Please don't give me what I deserve. That's what mercy is. And these men want mercy. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do. And Jesus is merciful. And again, there's a hymn. The writer captures the sentiment beautifully. We saw it earlier on the video. Although you may have noticed, it wasn't to the tune. It was to, it was to the tune of come thou found in the words of there's a wideness in God's mercy. They go like this. There's a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. There's a kindness in his justice, which is more than liberty. There is plentiful redemption in the blood that has been shed. There is joy for all the members in the sorrows of the head. Some of these old hymns have such depth to think them through. There is joy for all the members in the sorrows of the head. What does that mean? That means that because of the sorrow that Jesus Christ endured for us, we can know joy. That's what that means. That means that Jesus went through it so we don't have to. That's what that means. Just one little verse. For the love of God is broader than the measures of our mind. Amen. And the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. If our love were but more simple, We should take him at his word, and our lives would be thanksgiving to the goodness of the Lord. That's true, isn't it? Our love is complicated, and our minds get messed up. But if things were more simple, we would simply take him at his word. We would just believe. And if we would just believe, then our lives would be lives filled with thanksgiving for him. And that's the way it's supposed to be. Because we were made by him, and we were made for him to give him glory. So Jesus heals these ten Lepers, And when he does, he removes the disease that's keeping them at a distance from others and, and keeping them at a distance from God. And when he healed them, he cleansed them. And they were literally and ceremonially considered clean. That is acceptable. And he made them well. And he restored them to that, the way that life was intended to be. A life of intimacy and fellowship and peace with God and others. On its own, the healing of the ten lepers is a sweet story of deliverance for a few fortunate people back then and there. What does it have to do with us? What might it say to us here and now? As we close this morning, I want to suggest to you that the healing of these men prefigures the message of the gospel. The lepers are us. 
in our human condition. Exiled and afflicted by something we cannot fix or cure by ourselves, which is our sinful nature. And our sin-sick condition and the behavior that comes from it impacts our daily lives. It robs us of joy. It strains our relationships. It certainly puts distance between us and other people and us and a holy God. Now, our leprosy is not physical, not literal. It is spiritual in that we are blemished and hardened and wounded and scarred and unclean in heart. And we are hopeless, really, unable to fix ourselves. No one else can fix us, justly deserving the wrath of God for our disobedience, the eternal punishment that he prescribes for our unbelief, for our lack of faith. And like the lepers, we are desperate. Oh, that we would know how desperate we are. We are desperate. We are desperate for and we are dead without divine intervention. If God doesn't do something for us, it ends badly, folks. We are dead men walking. Only he can save us. And in Christ, that is what he's doing. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. What the Apostle Paul tells us in the book of Galatians, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. That's what God is doing. Jesus is God's hand extended in compassion to cure what's really wrong with all of us. And that is the good news of Christ. That is the gospel. There is, as Paul says in writing to Titus, a Savior, Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, to purchase us, to buy us back from the wickedness that, ha- that owns us, and to purify, to make us clean, to sanctify, to purify for himself a people that are his very own. There is a Savior, Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. The way to receive that redemption, the way to receive that purity, is to do just as the lepers did. Raise your voice. Cry out to Jesus for mercy and be cleansed. sinking deep in sin far from the peaceful shore very deeply stained within sinking to rise no more but the master of the sea heard my despairing cry and from the waters lifted me now safe am I oh and love lifted me love lifted me when nothing else could help love lifted me oh and love lifted me love lifted me when nothing could help love lifted me
to Him I give, ever to Him I'll cling, in His blessed presence live, ever His praises sing. Love so mighty and so true, merits my soul's best song, oh faithful loving service due to Him. Love